You guys ready? Hey, so uh, we started last week, we started a series called Women of Valor. And uh, we're just taking a few weeks to talk about some of the women in the Bible that uh, may get a little overlooked. I, I had a moment of confession myself of, you know, I have kind of my main people in the scripture. I always, I love Paul. He's like my dude, uh, Moses and Joseph and King David. I kind of always go to these people to talk to you. But there's one problem with that, right? Those were all dudes. And so uh, it's not that I hate women. I love my wife. Uh, <laughs> that's two weeks in a row I've said that joke, and it worked. Um, <laughs> I love, I respect women, love women. Um, but I don't know, that just, I, for some reason, there's a lot of women in the Bible that even I tend to not ever talk about. And so we wanted to just take a few weeks and highlight uh, some of the women in the Bible that, for some of you, maybe you've never even heard their story. And uh, for some of you, you have, but it would be encouraging to be reminded of their courage and their faith and all that kind of stuff. So that's where we've been uh, last week and where we're going for the next few weeks. And so if you have your Bibles out, we'd love for you to um, follow along. Uh, we're going to read a lot of scripture tonight, uh, but we're going to put it on the screen as well. If you're using a mobile device, that's great. We're going to be uh, reading in 1 Samuel chapter 1. I want to introduce you tonight to a woman named Hannah, a woman named Hannah, and uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1, and I'm actually uh, going to be reading from the message translation, because sometimes when I read a, a long story, especially in the Old Testament, uh, the message translation just helps it kind of make some sense into my mind, and so, uh, but you can read it along in your Bible there in front of you or on your mobile device as well. You guys ready to read? I want to read to you the entire or most of the chapter, 19 verses, kind of a long story, but I want you to get um, Hannah's story, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. Starting in verse 1, if you're ready, say amen. amen. All right, verse 1 says this. There was once a man who lived in Ramathaim. He was descended from the old family in the Ephraim Hills. His name was I'm going to go with Elkanah, okay? You say it how you want to, but I'm going to go with Elkanah. And uh, he was connected with the from Ephraim through his father, Jeroham, his grandfather, Elihu, and his grand, great-grandfather, Tohu. <laughs> uh, he, this, is, this is where it gets good. He had two wives. So Elkanah had two wives. The first was Hannah. The second was Penina. Try not to make fun of names, y'all. This is real hard. Panina had children. Hannah did not. Now, that's important right there. Panina had children. Hannah did not. Because every year, this man went from his hometown up to Shiloh to worship and offer a sacrifice to God of the angel armies. Eli and his two sons, Hopni and Phinehas, served as the priests of God there. When Elkanah sacrificed... He passed helpings from the sacrificial meal around to his wife, Penina, and all her children. But he always gave an especially generous helping to Hannah because he loved her so much and because God had not given her children. But her rival wife taunted her cruelly, rubbing it in and never letting her forget that God had not given her children. This went on year after year. Every time Hannah went to the sanctuary of God, she could expect to be taunted. Hannah was reduced to tears and had no appetite. Her husband, 
What did we say we'd go with? Elkanah. I think I change it up every time I read it. Her husband Elkanah said, oh, Hannah, why are you crying? Why aren't you eating? And why are you so upset? Am I not of more worth to you than ten sons? Just like a good man thinking he's worth more than everybody else. <laughs> Verse 9, so Hannah ate. Then she pulled herself together, slipped away quietly, and entered the sanctuary. The priest Eli was on duty at the entrance to God's temple in the customary seat. Crushed in soul, Hannah prayed to God and cried and cried inconsolably. And then she made a vow. O God of the angel armies, if you'll take a good hard look at my pain, if you'll quit neglecting me and go into action for me by giving me a son, I'll give him completely, unreservedly to you. I'll set him apart for a life of holy discipline. It so happened that as she continued in prayer, she continued in prayer before God. Eli was watching her closely. Hannah was praying in her heart silently. Her lips, this is crazy, her lips moved, but no sound was heard. So Eli jumped to the conclusion that she was drunk. He approached her and said, you're drunk. How long do you plan to keep this up? Sober up, woman. <laughs> Hannah said, oh, no, sir, please. I'm a woman hard used. I haven't been drinking on a drop of wine or beer. The only thing I've been pouring out is my heart. The only thing I've been pouring out is my heart. Pouring it out to God. Don't for a minute think I'm a bad woman. It's because I'm so desperately unhappy and in such pain that I've stayed here for so long. So Eli answered her, go in peace and may the God of Israel give you what you have asked of him. Hannah says, think well of me and pray for me, she said, and went her way. Then she ate heartily, and I love this part, her face radiant. Up before dawn, they worshiped God and returned home to Ramah. Elkanah slept with Hannah, his wife. Hello. And God began making the necessary arrangements in response to what she had asked. We're going to, I'll tell you kind of a little bit of the rest of the story, and then I'm going to pick a few things out that I, God's just been teaching me through the story of Hannah. So let me pray real quick. I know we prayed quite a lot tonight, but uh, let me just pray for this next few moments. Father, we love you. And we're grateful for your word. We're thankful for Old Testament stories that sometimes can seem a little bit whack. But God, I thank you that you bring them to life and you bring truth into them. And so, Lord, would you give us um, divine revelation tonight. And may we walk out these doors uh, different than we walked in them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, we need to, um, we need to have an important conversation. Is that Okay. I need to have an important conversation with you. I've recently become uh, somebody that I did not ever want to become. And I've been praying that this day would never come. And um, it just kind of happened over time just with culture and society and that kind of thing. I've recently become uh, basically a coffee snob. And even, even worse than a coffee snob, I've become a coffee shop snob. Do you know any coffee shop snobs? You don't even know what those are. Okay. Well, let me start explaining uh, what's happened to me, and then uh, maybe you'll connect with them. Um, I recently found a good coffee shop out near me, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about it, but I'm not going to tell you the name of it. Uh, I live out in the middle of nowhere, so it's nowhere close to here. I live out in Hushton. Most of y'all probably never even heard of Hushton before. Anybody grow up in Hushton? Ah, come on. 
We got four people in the room. Let's go. So I live a long ways away, but I recently found a uh, coffee shop near me, and uh, I really enjoy it. And it has a few things that I like about it, a few things that uh, I'm not so happy with, but that's okay. But I've, I've come to the uh, conclusion of what a great coffee shop consists of. I'm going to give you a few things of what a great coffee shop consists of. For, so for all you entrepreneurs out there, for all you uh, coffee shop owners one day, if you uh, dream of being that, here we go. Are you ready? You may want to take notes. The first thing that a great coffee shop needs, obviously, is quality coffee. Anybody love quality coffee? Can you tell between a quality coffee and a not-so-quality coffee? You ought to be able to tell. Um, a great coffee shop needs quality coffee. And what that means is like the beans are hand ground right there on the spot. Like when you order it and then they're poured into the thing and then hot water is poured over it. Like you get a classic pour over. Maybe you're feeling a little bit crazy. You go with the AeroPress. That's a little bit wild. But I'm talking like right there on the spot. Not the they just walk behind the counter and pull the little thing and then you get a cup of coffee. I'm talking right there, handmade specifically for you. If you're not into coffee, uh, a great coffee shop, another way of knowing a great coffee shop is if they draw the cool art on the, the little latte things. Some of y'all are into that instead. Fellas, if you drink one of those, I'm judging you so hard <laughs> if you get one of those in public. But that's how you know, is this a quality coffee shop place or are we just talking about like a mega chain? I'm not mentioning any names. Um, the, second thing, uh, the second thing that makes a great coffee shop is it's got to have good vibes. Right? It's got to have good vibes. If you got quality coffee but you got terrible vibes, I don't even want a part of it. It's got to have good vibes. What, is, what, is, what do good vibes consist of? I wrote down a few things. I got really into this as I started thinking about it. Uh, first of all, aesthetically. It's got to feel right. You know, you got to have just the right amount of local art. Um, not, not, you know, distant art. It's got to have local art from that place. You got to also have mixed in with that like the wooden tables that were uh, hand carved by the, the local long bearded guy, you know, that guy. And then you got to have mixed with that enough black iron to go with the wood. And if you don't have black iron, some rustic iron, you know, where if you scratch yourself on it, there's a 90% chance you're getting tetanus. That... <laughs> That is what makes a great coffee. That's a good aesthetic vibe there. You got to have a little but not too much chalk art, right? Not too much, but a little bit of chalk art. Chalk art's kind of going out, you know, out of style for those of you that are interior designers. Um, the second thing, not just aesthetics, but you got to have cool people, right? If you feel, <laughs> I'm so happy with those of you that are not in your head. This is encouraging to me, just going on a rant here. You got to have cool people, um, you got to have a, enough young people, but not too young, right? If you're if we're too many middle schoolers and, like, young high schoolers, then all of a sudden not feeling it, right? you got to have enough young people. Uh, you can't have too many old people either, too many senior adults. This was the problem with the shop that I was at not too long ago. I was just, you know, punching away, doing some work, and then I looked up, and all of a sudden there was a table of, like, seven senior adult women right there just chatting, not like a Bible study, not anything, just sat there for hours talking. Then some more, it was just too many. I love senior adults, but like, it was just too many. I felt uncomfortable there. So you got to have enough cool people. Can't have enough, you can't have too many business people. Like I want you to have some 
space for people to do work on their computers. But let's be honest, if you're in a suit and tie in my coffee shop, go get an office or something. Don't come into my coffee shop, right? Um, and then uh, the last thing, this is probably the, the biggest thing that I think coffee shops overlook that make up a great coffee shop. And um, so if you're looking to start one, make sure you pay attention to this. you got to have enough space. There is nothing worse than trying to have an important conversation with somebody and feeling like the person next to you is listening in. Do you guys know what I'm saying? Or let's just go the other route. There's nothing worse than you sitting there and the people next to you, you know, old Betty Sue and Johnny over there just decking it out, their problems and all their stuff, and you're trying to get stuff done. Nothing worse than that. you got to have enough space. And here's reality. You're probably not going to get all three of those. You're probably not going to get quality coffee, good vibes, and, um, and, and enough space. You're going to have to trade. And it's all about trades here. If you want quality coffee, you're probably going to have to trade fast coffee. Right? We know this about coffee shops. If you want quality coffee, it's going to take some time. I see a couple people that work in coffee shops. If, if you want quality coffee, it's going to take time. If you don't really care too much, you just go to a mega place, and they're just going to give you coffee real quick. That's all right. It took five minutes, and I'm out. So I was at this shop. Um, story continues. Just sit back and relax. Uh, I was at this coffee shop this week, and um, it, was, it was, you know, they, quality coffee. So they sacrifice, you know, a little bit of, like, fast coffee for quality coffee. And uh, it became lunchtime, and so a lot of people were coming in, and a lot of people were backed up because this uh, coffee shop also made a trade, and they decided that they're going to serve food as well. So when you serve food as well, then you trade speed as well. And so it was getting really backed up, and I noticed the barista lady or the lady uh, that works there, um, all of a sudden you could just start to see like a, a frantic like presence come over her. You ever been around somebody and you're like, I don't know what it is about you, but just like, uh, it sounds really hippie, but you just got negative energy. You got negative energy. You got like anxious energy. Uh, you got just energy that I'm just, it's just coming over me. You ever, you know somebody, like maybe it's you, I'm guilty of it too, but you ever just get kind of this, it's almost like a blanket of a certain type of presence that comes over you. And then if somebody else gets it, you can just sense it, right? You can feel it when someone's anxious. This lady, uh, I could just feel it. It was all over her, just anxiety, stress, uh, pressure was just coming on her. And everyone in the room could feel it. You started noticing everybody in line and waiting for food was just kind of like, yo, this is really uncomfortable because this girl, like everyone is just being affected by her presence, right? And so I, I, I took a risk. I took a risk and I got up to order <laughs> and I said, she said, sir, sir, how can I help you? How can I help you? Like just frantic. And I said, hey, I just took my time and I said, it's going to be all right. It's going to be good. Here's what I would like. And uh, I'm going to be here a while. Just take your time. We're all good. Nothing to worry about here. Just take your time. Everything's all right. And she said, thank you. Okay, next in line. <laughs> and it just started right back. I thought, oh, well, I tried. But I, I learned something. God reminded me of something in that moment. You know what he reminded me of? He reminded me of the power of presence. 
reminded me of the power of presence. I think there's a disconnect in most of us Christians in our lives, not because of a wrong theology, not because of a wrong like thought about God. Really, it's a, a, a wrong, it's a misunderstanding of God's presence. It's not understanding his presence. I wanted to, uh, I wrote it down this way, and I wanted to encourage some of you in this. God's presence does not push you away. It pulls you in. You need to know that tonight. God's presence doesn't push you away. It pulls you in. Now, I think there are times when God's presence is overwhelming and his presence is challenging. You can read all throughout Scripture when people encounter the presence of God. Uh, people like Moses, people like Isaiah, when they had this response like, woe is me, who am I? They fall to their knees or they can't even look at him. They're blinded by the presence of God. It's not always uh, super comforting. Sometimes it's challenging. Sometimes it's overwhelming. But it pulls you in. It does not push you away. God's presence is not a force to run from. It is a shelter to run to. It's not a force to run from. It's a shelter to run to. And there's a common attack on Christians and um, terribly, it's often from Christians. <laughs> so it's Christians attacking other Christians. Go figure. And it's this, um, it's kind of what we say to other Christians is this. You only go to God in your distress. Like the only time you really seek after God is when you have trouble. And it's weird that we attack people with that. I mean, I, I get kind of where we're going with it. But it's like we want people to feel guilty that the only time they go to God is when they're in distress. I really believe that the problem with most of us is that even in distress, we don't run to God. I think the greater issue is that for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, for those of us who are believers, even in our distress, we don't run to God. Now, I think maybe like if you encounter a tragedy, you encounter something right there, like a moment, then your first reaction is to run to God. I think that's true. But I'm talking about what about those just recurring things that seem to always come up in your life that never, they seem like they never go away and there's just always there. Maybe it's like Hannah and it's an infertility type thing. And it's just all like for years, just being reminded that she's barren and can't have children I don't know what it is for you, but just the constant reminder, this thing that's always there. Maybe it's your current addiction. Maybe it's pain from past mistakes. Maybe it's pain from uh, abuse in your past. Maybe it's, it's a, a family dysfunction, something that's just there constantly. My question to you is whatever that is in your life, do you find yourself like almost just absorbing it and failing to continue to go to God? Because what I've learned is some of those things are so painful to deal with and they hurt so much when I do go to God with it that sometimes I would rather just wrestle with it and deal with it on my own than even bother with going to God. And, and somehow I just decide, you know what, this is just my cross to carry. I'm just going to carry it and, you know, things happen to me and so I'll just deal with it. And we give up on going to God with it. 
And instead of being drawn into his presence, we're pushed away. And let's be clear, it wasn't him that pushed us. It's you. It's us that didn't want to go near, that did not want to draw near. In the story of Hannah, she was walking through for her, maybe the one, one of the most heartbreaking things you could walk through, especially back then in those times, because a woman, uh, her value was seen as uh, how many children she could bring into the earth. And so for her, she could not bring any. So this was like a curse on her, she felt like. So she's married to this guy, and because she couldn't have kids, uh, he marries another woman. And then this woman is one of the most, the worst human being ever, and says that she provokes Hannah grievously with this, reminding her that she can't have children. And then we find out that every time she goes to the house of God, she would be mocked and reminded that she can't have children, and yet she still went. She still made sacrifice. She still chose to go to the house of God and to get in the presence of God. And she found that to be the place where she brought all of her distress. And in her weeping and distress calls to God, as you read the story on, she has a son. And that son's name is Samuel. And Samuel goes on to be one of the most instrumental people in the journey of Israel. And so God's been teaching me just a few things through the life of Hannah, and so I wanted to share them with you, and maybe he'll speak to you as well. The first thing that I saw is this, that for Hannah, gifts from God were meant to be pointed back to God. It's interesting that she goes through this kind of uh, part of the story where she says, God, if you will give me a son, I'll give him back to you. I'll dedicate him to you. Now, I don't recommend a... Uh, prayer life where you bargain with God, I don't think that's a smart thing to do where you are constantly bargaining with him and saying, if you'll do this and I'll do this. But I wonder, I wonder if part of the reason why God does not answer our prayer requests the way that we want him to answer them is because he knows that when they get answered, they would actually uh, turn us back to be more selfish like they wouldn't be something that then turn us to give him praise and glory for those things, but they would actually make us more selfish. Let me give you an example. One of the, uh, I, one of the funniest kind of prayer requests that I, I get, and, and I get it, but it just kind of alarms me a little bit, is the prayer request of, hey, can you um, pray for me? I got a big test coming up. You ever get that? And I'm like, absolutely, I'll pray. I'd love to pray for you. Uh, just tell me what to pray for. And this is what, what's funny to me is pray for me because honestly, like I have not been studying. I have not been doing the right thing. And so I just need God to give me like the answers, you know, miraculously. So I'm like, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> all right. And so here's my thought. Is it possible that if God answered that prayer and like allowed you to do well on the test, that maybe that would create a habit in you where you said, well, maybe I can not study for the next one as well and get the same results. And so then you build a character in you that's actually not glorifying to God. And so maybe that's why he doesn't answer that prayer request. I'll give you a, another example. Like if you ever prayed for a new car, I, I just think, I think the best thing to ask 
when asking, you know, what should I pray for is, is why, why do I want this thing? Is this okay for me to pray for? Well, why do, I, why do I want this? Why do I want a new car? Is it because I would like a reliable source of transportation? Or is it because I want to portray an image of myself to other people and have them think more highly of me than I am because I'm so insecure about myself and I don't know where my self-worth comes from and, and, and I don't know what it means to build my identity on Christ and so I care a lot more about what other people think of me than I do what God thinks of me. Does that make sense? And so perhaps what the reason why God will not answer that request is because it's actually not the right thing for you. I, I love that, that Hannah says, God, I'm gonna give this right back to you. I think more of our prayers should look like, God, I'm gonna give this right back to you. The things that you've given me in life, I'm gonna give it right back to you. And I dedicate it to you. And obviously this was a, a different kind of circumstance than Hannah. This was a, a motherly type thing. But I think it applies to us as well. The second thing that I noticed about Hannah is this, that for Hannah, strength wasn't resisting her pain. It was actually knowing where to take it. Being strong wasn't that she resisted pain. It was actually just knowing where to take her pain. Most of culture and society today is telling you how to deal with your pain. And they're telling you how to deal with it is to ignore it, to move on, to get past it. Don't let it bother you. Don't give it any attention. Just resist it. And I'm good with that, and getting past your past is a good thing, but it's ineffective if you never take the time to actually deal with it. Do you hear me? It's ineffective if what you do is just bury it somewhere and never give the energy or whatever it takes to actually get into it and ask God for the healing to get through it. And most of us are just concerned and focused on how do I not let it affect me rather than getting into it and asking God to heal me inside of it. It says that for years, Hannah was tormented with this other wife mocking her for being barren. And yet we never have, um, we never have a record of her lashing out at this lady or taking her pain out on this lady. Instead, what we hear is consistently she went to God with her distress and she cried out to God and she wept to God and that was the place where she took her pain. I want to give you a little bit of an example here on the whiteboard. Um, wow, that was much better than I thought it was going to come out to be. A green heart. Most of us, what we do in our lives is when we have painful things, painful things in your past, painful things that you've uh, encountered now, what we tend to do is we bury it deep down in our heart. I just got to get past it. Just got to get through it. Just don't let it affect me. And so we put it way down here. And it just kind of darkens our heart. It's just that dark place deep down in there. I never address it, never want to get into it, just run from it, resist it. The problem is, is you keep having these things and more and more of your heart just keeps becoming stuff that you're burying deep down. And before you know it, your heart is overshadowed with pain. And here's my point in this. It's really hard to love God 
with all of your heart if you don't even have access to all of it? If most of your heart is covered up in pain and things that you don't even want to address, you don't even want to get into, it's really hard to give God all of my heart if most of it I don't even want to get into. And so I'm, 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 I'm almost keeping God from having most of me. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Weird. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That word mourn there in the Greek is the strongest word possible for mourning. It's actually the deep mourning and wailing that occurs over the death of a loved one. It's sorrow. It's a desperate, helpless sorrow. And yet Jesus teaches, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So here's my point. Only those who mourn will receive God's comfort. And the more freely that you allow yourself to mourn, the more freely you will feel his comfort. The more freely you allow yourself to mourn, the more freely you will experience. The more deeply you allow yourself to mourn, the more deeply you will experience his comfort. And here's the reality. Some of you have walked through some really painful, hurtful things in your life, and you've buried them deep down, and you've just decided to never go to it and just ignore it, and let's just see if I can move on. And I'm not in your situation. I don't know the whole story and all that kind of stuff. I realize that. But can I encourage you? to take the words of Jesus seriously, that blessed are those who mourn. And perhaps the greatest way that you can experience God's comfort is that you go to those things and that you mourn them and that you experience God's healing in those things. Don't just try and move on from it, but ask God to bring his healing into those areas of your life. Because when you ignore your pain, it surfaces in other areas. When you ignore your pain, it will eventually surface in other areas. Now, obviously, uh, you know, we could all mourn. And if we all spent too much time mourning and just walking around mourning, then it would be a pretty sad place to live, right? <laughs> we don't want to just be a bunch of mourners walking around. And that's why I love uh, one of the, the scriptures in Hannah's story in verse 18. It says this, she responds to Eli. She says, think well of me and pray for me, she said, and went her way. Then she ate heartily and her face radiant. It's like after she went to God and after she had poured her heart out, after she had gone to him with all of her distress and all of her sorrow, that she actually left radiant. And so the third point that I would make to you that I noticed about Hannah is this. For Hannah, the presence of God was like an unloading zone where she walked away with a lighter load. I just had this picture in my mind of like a, a semi-truck kind of driving up, backing up to a loading zone, an unloading zone, and unloading all of the equipment, unloading all the stuff, and driving away with a completely lighter load. And it was like for Hannah, when she walked into the presence of God, she did not hold back anything. Every, she was an open book. She let it all go. All of her distress, all of her sorrow, the presence of God was a place where she could take it into. But when she walked out of the presence of God, her face was radiant. Because there 
is where she experienced the healing that she needed, where she experienced the comfort that she needed. That's where, that's where it was. I love 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. It's, it's, it's a, maybe one of the most common verses, and so what happens with common scripture is they kind of get overlooked and like, oh, that's just a little thing. But it says, it says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I find so much comfort in knowing that God actually cares for me more than I even care for myself. So cast all your anxiety on him, for he cares for you. I want to give you a few thoughts tonight since we've talked about it, a few thoughts as we wrap up on God's presence. A few thoughts on God's presence. And this isn't, uh, you know, an all-inclusive teaching on everything about God's presence. But I want to just give you a few thoughts since we've gotten into it tonight. Can, we, can I still go for a few minutes? Are we all right? Come on, turn to your neighbor and say, you look good. It's random right in the middle, but did you guys do it? Okay. Um, <clears throat> a few thoughts I want to give you tonight, and then we'll close out. Lauren, you want to come back up? Great, let's have some fun. God's presence isn't just something to be in. It is something to experience the effects of. It's not just something to be in. It's something to experience the effects of. And just like the girl at the coffee shop whose presence was like changing the mood around her and everyone was being affected by it, God's presence changes things. It moves things. It shifts things. It does things that we could not even ask for better things than we can even imagine. That's what his presence does. So when we walk into it, things are changed. Things are shifted. But here's my challenge. We can't just say, when God shows up, things change. Because here's the reality. I believe that God is always with you. We know that's the truth. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you live with the Holy Spirit. He's living inside of you. And so one of the most comforting things is God is always with you. He walks with you throughout your day. He, he is with you wherever you go. That's one of the most comforting things about him is he's with you. So we can't just say that whenever God shows up, things begin to shift because he, he's always shown up. He doesn't leave. So he, he's shown up. He's with us. And so the fact is this. He's always present, but his activity has to be invited. The activity of the presence of God has to be invited. His presence is always available, but it is not always active unless we give him permission to be active. Now, let me clear that up. God is sovereign and God is always on the move. He's always active. I understand that God can do whatever he wants to do. He's not, you know, he's not waiting on me. Uh, he, he's bigger than that. He's bigger than time. He's, he's bigger. He's, he's doing whatever he wants. But here's what I know about God. He's actually made me a co-heir in the kingdom of God and invited me into a partnership with him where he wants me to walk with him and where he wants his kingdom to come to earth through me. And so he's using me as his vessel. And so there are times where God invites me into something where he says, hey, I want you to be the one to make this happen. I want you to be the one who brings this into motion. It's an invitation. I believe that God can do it without me. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He can do whatever he wants. But he's inviting you and he's inviting me 
to be a part of it. And that's where I believe that God's presence, the activity of God's presence has to be invited. So let me talk a little more. So when we come in here on a Thursday night, if you're a believer, you've been walking with the presence of God all day. But what is special about this gathering on a Thursday night is you're gathering now for a period of time with other believers where we are crying out to God. We're saying, God, for the next hour and a half, whatever, if Austin goes long, two hours, for whatever amount of time it is, God, we're asking for your activity amongst us. We know your presence will be there. You've said that. You've promised that. But we don't want just your presence. We don't want the, uh, like, just the access to you. We want the activity of you amongst us. That's what we want, and that's what's special about this. But let me also encourage you with this. When you gather in your room by yourself and you say, God, here's a sacred moment. I want to I wanna be with you for this 30 minutes, hour, 15 minutes, whatever it is. And, Lord, I'm asking for your activity in these moments asking for you to speak to me. I'm asking for you to reveal things to me through your word, through prayer. I'm asking for your activity in this moment. There's something powerful about the private and the public activity of God's presence. He's always with us. He walks with us. So you're going to go out into work. You're going to go out into school. You're going to go into your house, wherever, and he's going to be with you. I realize that. But I'm saying there is something powerful about the private and the public activity of God's presence. But here's what I know. There is a, it's like a a toxic thought process that I think we go to that scares us away. And I'm afraid that we have so highlighted the accessibility of God's presence that we have forsaken the private and public activity of his presence. And here's what I mean. Because we are so comfortable and we're so like enamored and and we we love the fact that God's presence is with us at all times, we just kind of become comfortable with that. And so we stop seeking the unique moments where his activity is at work. So because when I go to the coffee shop or I go to school or I go to work, he's going to be with me, then there's really no point for me to like spend 30 minutes with him in this moment where I'm seeking him and I'm asking for his activity. There's really no point for me to go to church and really beg for like an outpouring of his presence and for him to show up in an active way. There's really no point because the next day I'm going to, you know, he's going to also be with me when I go to work. Do Do you process this with me? So because we love the accessibility of God's presence, we take for granted the activity of God's presence. And so all of a sudden, the public gathering of his people where we ask for the activity of his presence is not so important. The private meeting that we have with him in moments in private that no one sees is not so important because we've become so obsessed with the accessibility of his presence. And I wanna just beg of you tonight, that you would also become obsessed of the activity of God's presence. Because it is in the private and the public moments when we experience his activity, where we get fueled into wanting to see his activity in the mundane moments, in the normal, just average, going to work, having a conversation, 
but it has to happen in the private moments with them first, and it has to happen in public moments, and that's what fuels us to go, God, if you can do it there, I believe you can do it out. When I'm just at work, when I'm just at school, when I'm just at home with my parents, when I'm just watching a movie, I believe your activity can be everywhere. But here's what happens. Sorry, I got a bunch of thoughts that I'm just unloading on you tonight. I feel like God gave me. This thinking that we have is this. Back to the board. We believe that his presence requires vulnerability. And that's true. When we get into God's presence, there's no pretense. There's no faking it. There's no point. God knows you. He knows every hair on your head. He knows the number of days that you're going to live. He knew you before you were even born. And so his presence requires vulnerability, that I am who I am. God, you see me. You know me. You know everything about me. And then vulnerability requires recognition. When I'm vulnerable, then I recognize my faults. I recognize my shortcomings. I recognize my missteps, my, my sin. I recognize all these things. I recognize my sickness. I recognize where I have toxic thought patterns. I recognize all these things in my life where I need him because I'm vulnerable with him in his presence. But then here's where we get stuck. Oftentimes when we recognize it, then we have a choice to make. And the choice is, what are we going to do from there? And many times we just say, that's true. And I don't want to do what comes from there. So I'm out. Because what comes from there is once I've recognized it, recognition leads to a commitment to repentance or a journey of healing. Once I've recognized my sin, I have to come to a place where I go, all right, Lord, here's the facts. Here's where I'm short. Here's, here's where I mess up. Here's the things I struggle with. I've got to come to a place where now I go, God, I repent of that. Repentance means a 180. I go, I repent of that, and I turn the other way. And Lord, I'm asking for your power within me to help me not go down that again. Repentance. I have to, if I recognize it, then I have to make a decision. One of the decisions is commit to, commit to repentance. Or the other one is this, a journey to healing. I believe that some of us recognize the pain in our life from our past. Some of us recognize the stuff that is really hurtful. We recognize the things that we've buried deep down in our heart, but we don't wanna go through the journey of healing because check this out, both of those commitment to repentance and a journey of healing are painful. It's painful. If you really wanna get down deep into this, it's gonna be painful. It's gonna hurt, but you gotta do it because on the other side of it is healing that God wants to bring you. And on the other side of that is comfort that you can only receive when you mourn. On the other side of that is a life of repentance where I'm freed from the sin that used to entangle me. But it's not easy and my fear is that most of us get to a place where we realize it's either gonna require me to repent or to get on a journey of healing, and we say, that's too hard, I'm out of here. And because that's where we go, we would just rather ignore the presence of God completely. I'd rather not get into the presence of God if this is the path that I'm gonna get on. If it's gonna lead me to a place where repentance is the end thing or healing is the end thing, 
I just won't mess with it. And so that's what I mean when I say most of us, many of us, get to a place in our life where we don't even go into the presence of God distressed and hurt and with our sorrow fully open, fully vulnerable, asking for his healing, asking for his deliverance. We won't even get into it. So we would just rather ignore it. And yet I read about Hannah's life and it was just this willingness to continually step into a place of worship, step into a place of just complete openness, complete vulnerability, believing that the presence of God, believing that that's where she could find healing and, and she did. And so the question that I've been wrestling myself with is this, how often, how often do I truly long to just be with God, to just be in his presence? Just be with him, to enjoy him. Or are there things in my life that I know that if I do that, it's gonna spark, it's gonna bring things up and I'm gonna have to deal with it. So I'd rather just not even go there. I'd rather just pretend to be a good Christian and do all the right things and try to not do too many bad things and there we go. And yet God is saying, I wanna be with you. I wanna do life with you. I don't need you just to do stuff for me. I want to do life with you. I don't need your acts. I don't need your talents. I don't need your gifting. I don't need all this. I want to be with you. That's what he longs for. And yet I just get so caught up trying to do stuff for him that I never am just with him, enjoying him. I love The scripture in Hebrews chapter four, verse 16, it says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's something about Hannah's persistence to just get in the presence of God, completely distressed and just completely an open book and ask for God's healing that encourages me to do the same thing. And so. I just want to maybe give you an opportunity tonight. If that's you, if, if maybe you're aware of your own just lack of getting to the hurtful things, of addressing the pain, of, of getting into that just because you'd rather not deal with it. And because of that, maybe you've just neglected sitting in the presence of God, being with him, just enjoying him. Maybe we could just have a moment tonight where you do that. And um, maybe you sit, stand, kneel, walk, whatever you want to do. I just think we should take a moment. Is that okay? So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And band's going to come back up and get ready to lead us in worship. And You know, I think I just long... I long for us to be a, a people that enjoy, love, look forward to, long to just be with God. 
And I know his presence is always with us, so we're technically always being with him. But I mean, like, God, nothing else in this moment matters. I just want to sit with you. I want to be with you. I want to enjoy you. I want to kind of drink of this fountain that you are. And I just know even as a man, something, something about that just, can I be honest with you, like feels kind of feminine. Like, no, actually, I'd rather just get out there and work for God. And yet I don't think that's what he's asking me to do. I think he would long just to be with me first. So maybe tonight is a moment where you can just be with him. Just sit with him, talk to him. Maybe you haven't done that in a while. Ask him to talk to you. Ask him to reveal something in you. Maybe you want to ask him to give you the courage to kind of face some of those painful things that you've just brushed away and pushed down. Maybe he's asking you to get into it a little bit and to look for his healing, not just for a way out of it. So why don't we just do this? You just respond how you need to. Zach's going to lead us in a song. You can stay in a moment of prayer. Do whatever you need to do. Zach. I just sent this is the right thing to do. If, if you're a leader in here, maybe just a couple of you, a couple of guys, a couple of girls, I'd love for you just to come down front. And I just want to open up. Maybe, maybe you'd like for somebody to pray over you. Maybe you'd like for 
someone to just uh, pray with you. And I, you don't, it doesn't need to be a counseling station. You don't need to, you know, talk about everything unless you want to. Maybe you just need somebody to pray for you. You never had someone pray for you. It's been a while since someone prayed over you out loud. Uh, just a couple of leaders come down front and um, just make that an option. You continue to pray or do whatever you need to do. Zach leads us. sing this together. I know it's a new song for us, but it's really the cry of our hearts and saying, Lord, we just want to be where you are. We just want to be in your presence. We just want to be with you. We just want to be amongst you. We want to see your activity amongst us. Let's just sing this together. I 
singing a song and giving the Lord our praise and telling him he's worthy of it and so if you're still doing business with God just keep doing your thing and um, we're going to close tonight um, singing together you guys can go back to your seats Just 
that's our prayer. And, um, you know, if you don't get anything out of tonight, my prayer is that you leave here knowing that his presence is something to run to, to shelter to run into. It's not something to run from. It's not intimidating. It's not something that's going to shame you. It's a place of healing. It's a place of restoration. It's a place that we should long for. So I hope you're encouraged tonight to do that, to run to him, to long for his presence. And um, man, like we say every week, just so thankful you guys came tonight, especially if it's your first time or second time, third time, or you're new around here, no pressure um, to get involved or anything. We just hope that this is a place that you can belong to, a place that you can call home, a place that encourages you, and um, just keep coming around. We'd love to get to know you, love to meet you. I'll be down here at the end of the service. If I've never met you, I would love the honor of doing that. Uh, congratulations, Matt, for your step of baptism. Love you. And uh, we'll be back next week to finish off our series, Women of Valor. And so uh, come expecting a good word. It's going to be a good night. You guys have a great night. We love you. See you.